this subcreation, this putting people into secondary worlds, is a way to get them out of the familiar and, and escape the everyday. And by doing that, you re-engage important things and they become more magical, more numinous, or to argue against Weber, it's not a disenchanted age, right? That is not true. It may be true about the academy, but it's not true about society at large that loves this stuff, right? And so the enchantment of literature there, I think is what he's talking about. And in Lewis's reviews of the books, he talks about this too, about this theory that they shared that if you take the mundane things, even like horses and shoes and roads, and you, you put them in myth, in a soup of myth, then you can appreciate even the mundane things even more. So it, the point isn't that there are people with furry feet, creatures with furry feet and dragons there. The point is to take you out of the familiar world and into the secondary world and to do serious things with you when you're there, like talk about virtue. Not in a pedantic way, not an allegorical way, but simply by having characters who struggle, overcome, and display virtues. Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm a philosopher at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Frey or on Instagram at Professor S. Frey, and you can also find this podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at eudaimoniapod. As always, I'd like to thank my sponsors for their support of this podcast. First and foremost, the Institute for Human Ecology, which underwrites this podcast, The IHE is an academic institute committed to research into the economic, cultural, and social conditions vital for human flourishing. To learn more about the amazing work that they're doing, please go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And I'd also like to thank The Lamp and The Point magazines for underwriting my Patreon page. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron. Just go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to sign up. As a $10 monthly patron, you can get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. If you're unfamiliar, The Lamp is a bi-monthly, lay-edited journal of Catholic letters that draws attention to those things that are true, good, and beautiful, whether they belong to the Catholic Church or not. To read some of this fantastic content, please go to thelampmagazine.com. And The Point is a magazine of philosophical writing premised on the idea that humanistic thinking has relevance for contemporary life. You can check out the latest fall issue at thepointmag.com. All right, I'm pleased to get to episode 55 of the podcast, which is with Professor Christopher Snyder on Tolkien and virtue ethics. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. This morning, I am joined by Christopher Snyder to talk about Tolkien and classical virtue ethics. Christopher Snyder became the first dean of the Shackles Honors College at Mississippi State University in 2011. He is professor of history 
and Director of British Studies there, and he's also an affiliated faculty member in the Department of English and was a History Research Fellow at the University of Oxford from 2014 to 2019. He has authored 10 books and numerous articles in the fields of archaeology, history, literary criticism, ethics, and medieval studies. And his most recent book, which is going to be the topic of our conversation, is titled Hobbit Virtues, Rediscovering Virtue Ethics Through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm delighted. And um, it was our mutual friend and previous guest, Roosevelt Montas, that connected us. And I'm super grateful for that connection because I wasn't aware of your work. But as soon as I saw your CV, I was like, how do I not know this man? (laughs) (laughs) I need to know this man. So I'm really excited to talk about Tolkien and virtue with you in part because I know a lot about virtue, and I know a little bit about Tolkien, so I'm excited to understand their connection better. But actually, first, I just want to talk about you, if that's okay, <laughs> because, again, I think, I, think you're, I think your CV is sort of very interesting because you seem to straddle multiple fields, uh, multiple right. parts of academia. Uh, I think that's kind of wonderful and rare, but it, but it sort of strikes me that you're kind of first and foremost, a medievalist. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And you, I mean, so, and, and what it's kind of medieval history and literature. Yeah. So I am not your typical Tolkien nerd who read this stuff as a kid and fell in love with it and, and knew it inside and out. By the time I went to college, I, fell in love with the Arthurian legends as, as a kid. And so I was reading Mallory's Mort Arthur and P.H. White's Sword in the Stone and Once and Future King. And that's what really drew me to the Middle Ages. And at first I thought the most interesting question was, was there a historical King Arthur? And so that led me into the history side of things. But I, I soon understood that, A, we can't really answer that question there is there is no historical evidence and b that's not the most interesting question i really love the period the early middle ages the the late roman period and the early middle ages to me in the british house is just such a fascinating period because it's where the arthurian legends the, the legends about merlin come from it's where saint patrick who was a historical figure you know lived and it's uh, also the the era in which beowulf is set so as you can tell, a lot of this stuff is coming from the literary side of things. So I'm a medieval historian who uses literature quite a bit to talk about uh, l'histoire mentalité, the, the way people think. That really interests me as a historian. So I use history and archaeology to answer questions about the 5th and 6th centuries in Britain, but I use medieval literature to answer questions about how people thought about Arthur or how they thought about chivalry or virtue or or what have you. Yeah. So, I mean, so you're a kid, like how old are you when you're reading these Arthurian tales? Yeah. So I I grew up as a television, kid of the television generation. So I was watching the the cartoon versions of the Lord of the Rings and and, and the Hobbit in the late seventies and early eighties. And 
I wasn't much of a reader, so it wasn't really until later in high school that um, I kind of fell in love with the Arthurian legends, mainly through Mallory's Mort Arthur, which is uh, something that links me to Tolkien and Lewis, because they were both very heavily influenced by Mallory. Lewis writes about it as a kid, as a teenager, how it's just forming his identity. Even John Steinbeck writes about how important Mallory was to him. So it, there's this great you know, magnum opus of the Arthurian legend that I, I kind of fell in love with in, in high school. And I didn't really, I read The Hobbit somewhere along the way, but I actually read Lewis and Tolkien's scholarship on the Middle Ages before I read The Lord of the Rings, before I read many of C.S. Lewis's works. I was attracted to them as professional medievalists. Okay, so that was, yeah, that's an unexpected answer. <laughs> I mean, I love it, but I was just expecting you to be like, oh, you know, I was reading this stuff as a kid. I mean, you said that you read Mallory in high school. I mean, was that assigned or? I think I went into a grab bag of, you know, here's an era, here are some authors you pick. And, and I picked, it was actually something called The Boys King Arthur, which is a late 19th century retelling of Mallory, but it's not very modernized. So you get a lot of the Malorian language there. And I can, and kind of fell in love with reading that way. And especially T.H. White, The Sword in the Stone and The Book of Merlin made me want to be a teacher and a writer. The, but not a knight. <laughs> well, I probably knew I had some limitations there. But the, the teacher, Merlin, who is trying to teach Arthur lessons about politics and about uh, morality by turning him into animals. I thought that is amazing that to think of the teacher that way that can bring you into this kind of other world. The power of the teacher is like a magical power. And so I, I really thought, oh, I want to write like T.H. White and I want to be a teacher like Merlin. Mm, yeah. I mean, were you kind of alone in this in this interest? Well, I, like like many people of my generation, I played Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I will admit that. But I think it only lasted for about two years, maybe, when I was about 15 or 16. I was more interested in being the dungeon master and creating the worlds than I was actually playing the games. Mm -hmm. So I was not alone in my kind of interest in this, this stuff. But you know, I think my friends who were playing it probably knew Tolkien much better than I did at the period. Because there is an absolute connection between Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's world, and, and Dungeons and Dragons. But I, I, got, I got rid of that kind of interest by the time I got to college when I thought, oh, you know, it, it's, th there's great literature out there. And it's, it's really more interesting than anything else I'm studying. So I kind of abandoned the D&D &D and the video games and all that because I was just in love with, with the humanities. Right. And so... Did you major in history or literature as an undergrad? I, I made a great career move. I changed my major from electrical engineering to medieval and Renaissance studies. I love it. Yeah, I love the it. the only person who's ever done that, but I did. There's a great line in uh, An Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, this great passage where uh, when John the Savage arrives in London and they're showing off all the technology and they say, look at these helicopters. You know, they, it can take you from London to to America in five hours or whatever. And John responds, oh, that's nothing. 
Ariel can wrap a girdle around the world in an hour. Right. Something to that effect. And right. that's exactly what it was for me. That as good, as interesting as, hum- as technology and science are, they can never uh, keep up with the human imagination. Writers are always more powerful. Right. So, well, I'm also a, a medieval studies nerd. So my undergrad was uh, medieval studies philosophy with a minor in classics. Because um, oh, cool. I couldn't manage to learn Greek. So they were like, <laughs> yeah, you can only minor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good compromise. I, 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 they told Tolkien something to that to that effect. I just Latin was hard enough for me, but I did take four years of it. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I so I studied medieval literature as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was taught it especially well, to be honest. Um, the professor teaching me medieval literature seemed to hate the medieval period. She sort of taught Dante in this very flippant, like, oh, well, he just put all his political enemies in hell sort of way. Yeah. And I was like, mm, I think maybe there's something else going on there. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Look at the language. You know, it's like, <laughs> even if that's true, it seems like the least interesting thing you could have said. But yeah, I I read just a, just a ton of medieval literature and... And like the Icelandic sagas and the Nibelungen and oh, that's great. And the Arthurian legends and all of that. But I mean, let's not talk about how long ago it was at this point. <laughs> but it was a while ago. <laughs> it was not the and, Middle Ages. And what I find is so few people know these stories. Even people who yeah. very much pride themselves on on being well read and literate. My experience is that medieval literature is almost unknown to most people. I mean, with some exceptions, like yeah. people know the Arthurian, Arthurian legends and things like this, but they, but they right. know them in a very mediated kind of way, right? In the way that you right. knew them originally as a child, like through television. Or just, I don't know, it's like Monty Python's The Holy Grail. <laughs> which is great, which is a masterpiece. Yes, it is. And a lot of references to medieval literature there. But, you know, you're talking about an Oxbridge crew who put that together. So they, they, they knew their stuff. But I think you're right. Um, Lewis and Tolkien lost a battle. They, they won it temporarily at Oxford. And that was a battle in the English curriculum over how much of language, the English language and the history of the English language, would be in there as a requirement for English majors um, versus literature, especially modern literature. And so, so Beowulf, for example, was, is constantly being threatened to be tossed out of the, of the canon of, of the, of the, for an English major. For, for Lewis and Tolkien, that meant you had to read Beowulf in, in Old English, um, which I was lucky enough to do. I, I took a, a Oh, do you, a, a, do you medium... read Old English? I do, yes, I because do. Because Old was... English is crazy. Oh, it's, it's great. Um, it's, you know, I, don't, I don't use it much for research purposes because there aren't many early documents. Most, most things are in Latin. But to, to work on these Tolkien books and to go back and get to do my own translations of, uh, of old English texts was one of the fun, you know, fun parts of those, those projects is I really enjoyed struggling with the poetry again. And I had a good me- uh, medieval literature professor who I started with in Chaucer, but then he took me into the world of Beowulf. And so I studied Anglo-Saxon pretty closely as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Do you know any but I think of that? they lost that battle in the end. They, they, they kept it in the curriculum at Oxford, but more and more 
the, the language part of the syllabus and the medieval lit part got pushed out to make room for more modern and modernist authors. Right. So it's sort of like, I mean, what, why do you think that's happening or has happened? Because I think certainly in the curriculum here, like if you were an English major at my university, although we have a wonderful medievalist who's my neighbor and my friend uh, and who has been on this podcast, you know, you don't necessarily have to study it. It's not like, um, it's not like, oh, you know, this is just part of the major. I mean, why, why do you think that has happened? Is it just like you said, so that, you know, people can read more contemporary stuff? Yeah. I mean, we have to remember the English major has not been around very long, um, relatively speaking. So it didn't exist at Oxford, for example. You couldn't read in English until uh, World War I. Okay, I just am going to admit I'm totally ignorant. So do you want to, and, and I suspect that a lot of people are. So yeah, I would be interested in this history. Yeah, so just briefly, of course, you read classics at Oxford, and that's what Tolkien and Lewis both came there to do. And unless you were eventually in the 19th century going to do sciences, 18th and 19th centuries, you were reading classics, theology. That was it. You know, you, you didn't have a whole lot of choice. So there was no such thing as the English major or reading in English until you had more female students at Oxford um, who were recognized and eventually allowed to, to have a, a degree, an Oxford degree, 1920, and more international students. So there was a lot of interest in English literature, especially, as you can imagine, ro romantic poets and 19th century novelists. But Oxford is slow to change and didn't think you needed to major in a subject uh, in order to just enjoy reading English novels. The, the, the hard stuff was struggling with Greek and Latin. So you went to college and you did that. You could read this other stuff, you know, Byron and Shelley, you know, in your spare time. So Oxford didn't, didn't want to change until eventually they, they, they did because they had a lot of student interest. And Tolkien, to bring this back around to Tolkien, he started at Oxford already with a classics background as a classics major, reading in the, in the uh, literae uh, humaniores. Our friend Roosevelt will recognize that, that term because it still exists at Columbia. They were reading classics, but Tolkien was getting distracted by medieval literature and language, and he was teaching himself Finnish and Welsh, and it wasn't helping in his translations of Ovid and Virgil. And so he didn't do so well in his first year exams, and, and some kind professor told him, son, you might think about becoming an English major. And the rest is history. He did. He changed, changed it over to English philology and, and medieval literature were his thing for the rest of his life. And he was, I mean, he was a very serious scholar, correct? Absolutely. He was, he, he was uh, recognized as one of the world's leading experts in, on several medieval works, especially Beowulf and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. His essay, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, which again, I read very early on, is considered the most famous, maybe most impactful essay ever written on Beowulf. And he did a translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that became the standard edition and the standard translation for, for university students for decades. So he's, so he's doing this work in 
I mean, let's just, let's just call it medieval literature. I mean, at what point does he make the transition to writing fiction? Because right. it seems like quite the transition, you know, from being yeah. an academic who, and, and being concerned with philology right, and the study of text to actually doing creative work. Right. Well, so I, I worked on a project, I wrote, ended up writing a book about F. Scott Fitzgerald and his interests in, in medievalism, which people totally overlooked. And if you, if you take four great writers who are exact contemporaries, T.S. Eliot, F. Scott Fitzgerald, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis, they had two things in common. One was they were all fascinated with the Middle Ages. And so their medievalism, their reimagining the Middle Ages, comes out in all kinds of work that they do. But the other is they all, as young men, aspired to be great poets. And I think we forget about that, that throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century, the most serious writing that you could do was poetry. The aspiration was to be the next Spencer, Dante, Shakespeare, right? To be a great poet. And I think you could tell from those four figures that only one of them um, actually succeeded as a career as a poet, but they all wrote poetry that was inspired either by actual medieval poetry or by reimaginings of medieval poetry, especially the romantic poets. And, and Lewis and Tolkien wrote a lot of poetry. A lot of people would say a lot of bad poetry. I, I think that's unfair that some of it is, is rather good, but they may not realize that, that that's what Fitzgerald wanted to do too. And so you can, you can keep some of the ethos alive in, in fiction, in, in novels that you were trying to do as a, as a poet. And so Tolkien was writing poetry and thinking up stories in verse all of this time that he was a student at Oxford, that he was a soldier in the trenches in World War I, and beginning his career as an academic. He was writing this stuff. He just wasn't sharing it publicly. Mm -hmm. And when he ended up writing The Hobbit, down in the late 20s, early 30s, he showed it to very few people, most importantly to C.S. Lewis. And it was C.S. Lewis who encouraged him to take what originally was a story that he wrote for children uh, and to publish it as a novel. So was it a story that he wrote for his own children? He came up with the stories to tell his children, but more and more he pulled this, this really you know cool story into a world he had already created in his mind the world of Middle-earth, this great mythology for England that he aspired to, to, to do. He was writing other poems that weren't at all children's poems. In, he just wasn't sharing most of that. that. What happened is he pulled these hobbit tales into this great mythology where elves and dwarves dominate. You, you get to see more, more and more hobbits when, when you get into the Lord of the Rings. But originally, they were, they were totally disconnected. And it was the, inf the uh, influence of, of Lewis and, and uh, the encouragement that said, this is good. You ought to get it published. But remember, still, he's not a professional writer. He's, he, he's not a novelist. So a lot of people that find fault in Tolkien are, are, are right in thinking, well, he, he, you know, he's not somebody who's already written five novels. He's not practiced at this genre. By the time he writes... Uh, Lord of the Rings in the 50s and publishes it. He's fixed a lot of these kind of narrative 
problems in, in writing novels. And, 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 and most of the stuff he's doing in The Lord of the Rings is actually quite sophisticated prose. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the novel is n- not a medieval genre, <laughs> as you know. Right. And, and he's kind of creating these stories for fun. I mean, does he feel like he has to write a novel just given, you know, the time and place he finds himself in? Or or is there some reason why he chooses the novel as a genre? Or is it even correct to call it a novel? Well, if, if you're a poet and you aspire to write great poetry, then the highest of poetic forms is the epic. Right. And the epic verse, epic verse just virtually disappears by the end of the 19th century. And so a lot of the aspirations of people who would have written that way get channeled into the novel. So when you look at how big The Lord of the Rings is, how massive it is, well, you got to think of it more similar to the Iliad and the Aeneid. He, he's, he's writing, you know, what would have been if it had been in verse, written as an epic. And what he's not published during his lifetime is this even bigger mythological context that the scholars call the legendarium, that his son publishes some of that as the Silmarillion. And that, you, if you read the Silmarillion, you see just how similar it is to Milton and a lot of writers of epic verse. Yeah, I mean, and I kind of also wonder how influenced he is by the children's literature of right. that period in, in the UK, because I sort of think of... I mean, I I have six kids, so I've been reading classical children's literature for, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a good 13 years now uh, with them. And I mean, it's just such an amazing period for classical children's literature in English. Is he, I I mean, is he kind of trying to take his interest in epic poetry and in medieval literature and sort of fit it into that space? Yes, but maybe not intentionally. Maybe he didn't know he was doing that. So Tolkien liked to to characterize himself as somebody who didn't read anything after the 15th century. It just nothing was worth reading. Oh, okay. So he's not reading like the wind in the willows to, to his kids well, or something. Yeah, that, that's kind of how we thought of him for a long time because he, he wanted himself kind of to be seen that way. There's a Tolkien scholar named Holly Ordway who's just written a book about the modern Tolkien, about how much modern reading he's done. And I think she's right, especially about children's literature. So he's reading a lot of late 19th century, late, late Victorian and Edwardian children's literature, but also things like William, William Morris and George MacDonald, who aren't always writing for children. They're writing kind of adult romance, uh, novels written in kind of a romantic vein, mythology for you know, adults. That kind of stuff was really inspiring him. But Beatrice Potter and Wind in the Willows were definitely two influences of Tolkien, especially in The Hobbit, just the characterization of Hobbits and Bilbo himself. A lot of that is inspired by some very contemporary works. Yeah. So, um, okay. So he's writing, he's writing children's literature. Is that, I mean, is that a fair, is that a fair characterization of the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, that it's children's literature? 
No, overall, I would say no, it's, it's not. Even though he started telling Hobbit stories to his children, by the time he's written it as a novel, it is, it, it, it is not children's literature anymore. And you can see that even the narrative changes. So he will make asides. The narrator in The Hobbit early on will, will wink to the adults, will, will step out and make these kind of patronizing statements talking about children, what children like. And, and Lewis does that a good bit in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, too. And critics find fault in that. And Tolkien found fault in it. He said, I shouldn't have done that. So I think when he started the novel, he was thinking in terms of the way you write for children. But by the time you get to The Dragon, it becomes a very serious novel. And it's about warfare. It's about death. It's about property disputes. It's about all kinds of things that are closer to heroic verse, the, the, what you mentioned earlier, the Nibelungen lead, things like Sig Sigurd and Fafner, it, it's similar to that. So it, it's no longer children's literature. So it's kind of a transitional work. Lord of the Rings is not children's literature at all. The children can read it and enjoy it, but there's a, just a whole lot going on there for adults to, to play with. Well, how do you think it, I mean, because I think the perception, I mean, certainly, yeah, I mean, my perception which I'm, ha I'm totally happy to be disabused of is that, you know, it's children's literature. So I read, um, I finished the Lord of the Rings with my sixth grader. We started in the fifth grade. It mm -hmm. took us a long time. <laughs> Cause also like we, I, I would let him watch the movie after he finished like a whole, right. you know, right. <laughs> a whole part of the series, which sort of like kept him going. Yeah. So I mean, how did it, how did it get that label? Um, I, I think that's a, it's a complicated kind of process. If you look at the Alice books of Lewis Carroll, for example, yes. there's somebody who's very much like Tolkien, spends his entire career as an academic in Oxford. Critics can see that he's writing for children and he's writing for adults, that there's stuff there that both can enjoy. So I, I think it often, even though it, there, there are versions, kind of illustrated versions, stuff that, that are put in the children's literature section, you wouldn't be surprised if you saw um, Lewis Carroll's books in, under the literature section in a bookstore, right? Mm. But you never see that with Tolkien and Lewis. You never see that. The Hobbit is probably going to be in the children's section, but, but The Lord of the Rings, Lewis's fiction will always be in fantasy and science fiction sections. And so part of it is the way fantasy and science fiction were perceived in the middle of the 20th century as not being serious. Mm. Genre literature, uh, this stuff is just not what serious writers do. And, that, and that's totally unfair to Tolkien because he wasn't writing fantasy. Fantasy didn't exist until after Tolkien's writings. Fantasy as we know it is mostly imitative of Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's medievalism. Mm -hmm. The good fantasy writers like George R. R. Martin will admit to that, how much mm -hmm. that Tolkien has influenced them. So, so Tolkien wasn't trying to write genre at, literature at all. He was simply trying to tell stories that he thought were good by borrowing from a lot of ancient and medieval literature and the topic of my book, Hobbit Virtues, um, by having characters that display virtue, that right. he really felt there was a serious 
even philosophical purpose to good literature. And he was trying to do that, not write for children. So is the proper, we are going to get to virtue, I promise, but I just <laughs> am very interested in these meta questions because I'm a philosopher and I just can't help myself. So, I mean, look, is the proper genre, what, myth? What, what I mean, if it's not fantasy, which I agree, but mostly just because I take a dim view of fantasy, I, I have to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't read fantasy either, or, or, at least not anymore. Um, I don't enjoy most. It's a, it's a big commitment to get into these worlds. Yeah. Fantasy, fantasy writers are, are world builders, and some of them are very good at it. Tolkien was the best. But it's an investment to get into that world. And yeah. I just don't always want to make that investment if I'm not gu guaranteed that this writer is a good writer and it's doing yeah. it for serious I mean, I think, I think at some point I'll devote an episode to my problems with fantasy. But um, so sorry if I'm probably alienating what, so many of my listeners. What but genre, it, <laughs> yeah. What, what yeah, genre? What genre? It and, and I think that Tolkien's answer would be fairy stories. Let's talk about that. Funny. Fairy stories. Um, fairy stories or... Um, is sort of the English version we would call fairy tales. But we think of fairy tales as being written for children. And Tolkien wrote a very important essay on fairy stories in which he says that that's all wrong. It, it was ridiculous to say these are nursery rhymes. These are things that are in appropriate to the nursery. Just because they're kind of outdated doesn't make them bad. And so you take old furniture and you put it in the nursery. And we've done the same thing, he would argue, for, for these fairy stories. And in a more technical term, he uses, uh, two, well, two terms. Mythopoeia is the creation of myth. So that could be a lot of different things. And then he, he uses sub-creation as the way to describe the way writers who are created themselves create other worlds as a reflection of the, the creator who created them. So a lot of his fiction is about exploring these notions of mythopoeia and sub-creation. And this is pretty serious, I would say, philosophical stuff. And it, it, it was just that critics in the 1950s, early on, did not read the book Lord of the Rings closely, did not read the books when they came out, and, and did, not, did not have that background in language that Lewis and Tolkien did. So they dismissed them too easily. And that, that kind of formed the way the intelligentsia, the literati, viewed Lewis and Tolkien. And therefore, professors taught their undergraduates and graduate students not to take it seriously. We might be seeing a turn. It, it, I think things are getting a little bit better. And there are more serious scholars who, who work on Tolkien and Lewis. But I think it's mainly about that mid-20th century definition of what is literature and what is good literature. Right. So what, what for, um, like, what are examples from Tolkien's perspective of fairy tales? Is it like Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood? That like what, you know, if I, like if I think of fairy tales, that's what I think of. Am I wrong? Yeah. So he, he's very uh, sneaky about this. He doesn't give us a great definition. He tells us what, what aren't fairy stories. Uh, for example, he doesn't include the Alice books, and he doesn't include Wind, Wind in the Willows because he calls those um, dressed animal stories. So you're just, <laughs> you're just yeah. telling stories about people, uh, you know, but they're animals. Or opium you know, dreams, you know. Yeah. So, you know, he kind of, what, what he says is that the fair, fairy 
fairy realm is where fantasy takes you. It takes you into a world in which there are elves and dwarves and hobbits, right? Um, and once you're in that world, you have to s suspend disbelief. The world has to be consistent. You have to be committed to the rules of that world. And these stories where you're, it's just a dream or you're, you're traveling there and coming back again, the way that, that Narnia works, the way that Harry Potter works, he rules those out. He doesn't think they are, strictly speaking, the fairy stories. I see. Uh, so, so the Chronicles of Narnia would not count. He did not like the Chronicles of Narnia. He famously dissed them uh, to Lewis and to all of their friends. And for a lot of different reasons, he thought Lewis was just throwing a whole bunch of stuff in there haphazardly. Why, why do you have centaurs and Santa Claus all appearing in, uh, in Narnia at the same time? Why do you have these different traditions? So he didn't think there was careful world build, building going on there. And I think he didn't like that Lewis played theologian. Tolkien said, stay in your lane. You're not a professional theologian. So why are you writing all this stuff about Christianity? So that, they had a disagreement there. Oh, okay. So that's so interesting. So, I mean, what does it mean to stay in your lane as a, um, as a creator of fairy tales? I mean, is it, uh, because, because surely it doesn't mean that there's not a transcendent dimension. And surely it doesn't mean that uh, there's not a whole lot of seemingly supernatural things going on. What? Uh, yeah, I just, can you elaborate more on that complaint? Yeah, so as you know, a lot of Christians are drawn to Tolkien's writings, and yet there's no, there are no, there's no God, there are no gods in The Hobbit, in The Lord of the Rings, there are no churches, there are no temples. And so people were like, what, you know, what's going on? And Tolkien actually wrote in a letter um, right after the first one came out that he wasn't writing allegory, he had no intentions like he, you know, a lot of people thought Lewis was doing a writing religious allegory. He said, but the only criticism that really annoyed me was one that it contained no religion. He said, it is a monotheistic world of natural theology. So in other words, there is a God there. You just can't see him. <laughs> he is behind the scenes. So when Tolkien talks about doom and fate and luck in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, there are these kind of pagans trying to figure out who this creator is without this kind of direct revelation of that world. And a lot of it, they figure out through their contact with the elves and their contact with nature. And then the elves in Tolkien are always the ones who are closest to the natural world, right? They were the firstborn. It was kind of created, Middle-earth was created for them. Um, so the, the kind of religiosity of the Lord of the Rings often comes from the elves, often comes from either the elves or the people who respect elvish culture. They, they kind of have these incantations and, and sort of prayers. And, and that's what he's getting at. And we struggled with this. And we really think Tolkien just did not want to compete directly with the Bible and with things that were overtly kind of Christian. So he doesn't write a great Arthurian novel because he says it's, it's Christian mythology now. It's already imbued with Christianity. People know this stuff. And so he doesn't want to compete with that. But he creates this entire other world 
and then peoples it with characters who reflect either virtues, I would argue, or perhaps reflect biblical figures uh, themselves. That's so fascinating. It's sort of like he's mad at Lewis, not so much for doing theology, but for doing, you know, what St. Thomas would call soccer doctrina, holy teaching. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, it's sort of like the difference, I suppose, between the five ways and, you know, the treatise on the Trinity. But at any rate, well, why don't we, this is kind of a, a natural point, I think, to transition into talking about your book, which is a great book. Thank you. And what, yeah, Hobbit Virtues, Rediscovering Virtue Ethics through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, what, yeah, maybe you could just talk about how this book came to be and sort of what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. So this is my second book on Tolkien. And I had I'd written a book on, on the Arthurian phenomenon and, and what I call an academic coffee table book. The kind that has lots of pretty pictures in it, um, but in a series that's written by academics. And after that one was done in 2000, I wanted to write one about Tolkien in the same series and to look at it as a phenomenon. And my particular, you know, tools that I could bring to it were as a historian and archaeologist. What does history and archaeology tell us, teach us about this world? This world that Tolkien and I both loved. You know, people sometimes get it through the literature because literary critics tend to write about Tolkien and Lewis, um, literature professors, but very seldom do historians. So what can we say as historians about this world that Tolkien loved? How can, how can I show people more of that world, of the ancient and, and early medieval world? Um, so I wrote, I wrote a book in, in, that came out in 2013 called The Making of Middle Earth, and that was sort of the angle that I took there. And that, that book is, is actually um, a revised edition is coming out on August 30th. Um, so the history archaeology stuff I kind of exercised in that. And then I hadn't planned on doing another Tolkien book. And then some things happened in our country around 2016. And there was a <laughs> lot of anger. A lot of people forgot what civil discourse was. And I thought, what's a what's well, a construction? Did they so break? much forget, or did they just they they came out against it, right? I mean, like the whole line was, civility is a secondary virtue, right? And yeah, it's uh, yeah, there were definitely some nihilists there. There's definitely some grasp, naked grasping of power, but Tolkien mm -hmm. readers know that's never a good thing. So I, I thought, well, what you know, what how could I kind of write about this? and talk about a language that we can share in common across political divides, across religious divides. What is it that we can recognize and agree on? And I, I hit on virtue, on virtue ethics. And at the same time, I had been kind of um, accumulating some material about comparative virtue ethics in, in, uh, in the ancient world through, other, through different cultures for courses that we teach in the Honors College called our Quest courses, that are our core text or great books courses. And they're reading Confucius, they're reading the Nicomachean Ethics, they're reading the Bhagavad Gita. So a lot of this stuff for freshmen, you know, they've, they've never read any of this before. And they're getting these concepts without knowing what the words are being used and, and how they're being used. So I had been compiling this information as a teaching tool, and I just put it together. I'm like, okay, well, what about doing a book about virtue ethics 
but through Tolkien, through literature and literature that that you know this generation, my students mostly love Lewis and Tolkien. Um, they they are people who come to college with having read uh, read the works. So there was already that commonality there. And what if I could just remind people that the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are two of the best selling novels of all time worldwide. And just about every list you look at, they're in the top 10, if not the top five. Yeah, The Hobbit, I think, exceeds all of them, right? Isn't The Hobbit like the most it, popular? It's hard to figure out the, um, the sales figures because The Lord of the Rings was written as a single book, but it was published as three books at first. So it depends on how, how you count the sales of Lord of the Rings. But roughly 100 uh, million copies of The Hobbit and maybe uh, 150 million copies of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you open up your book with this quote from a letter, I take it, that Tolkien yeah. wrote, yeah. which says, I would claim if I did not think it presumptuous and one so ill-instructed to have as one object the elucidation of truth and the encouragement of good morals in this real world by the ancient device of exemplifying them in unfamiliar embodiments. Can you explain the context of that quote and sort of how it situates what you're doing in this book? Yeah, so Tolkien is, is writing to different publishers and trying to explain his projects, not just in The Lord of the Rings, but this bigger project, The Silmarillion. And, you know, what is it that he's exactly is he trying to do? And he doesn't always make it easy for scholars because he says a lot of things that kind of lead us down the wrong path. So I, I often look in, in Tolkien's letters when he's writing to a priest or to a nun. He never lies to a priest or a nun. Um, but to scholars, uh, he, he may be um, playing games. So uh, in, this, in this passage that you read, I was going read it, to read it too. It is a letter right when the book comes out where he's basically saying that this sub-creation, this putting people into secondary worlds, is a way to get them out of the familiar and, and escape the everyday. And by doing that, you re-engage important things, and they become more magical, more numinous, or to argue against Weber, it's not a disenchanted age, right? That is not true. It may be true about the academy, but it's not true about society at large that loves this stuff, right? And so the enchantment of literature there, I think, is what he's talking about. And in Lewis's reviews of the books, he talks about this too, about this theory that they shared, that if you take the mundane things, even like horses and shoes and roads, and you, you put them in myth, in a soup of myth, then you can appreciate even the mundane things even more. So the point isn't that there are people with furry feet, creatures with furry feet and dragons there. The point is to take you out of the familiar world and into the secondary world and to do serious things with you when you're there, like talk about virtue. Not in a pedantic way, not an allegorical way, but simply by having characters who struggle, overcome, and display virtues. Do you think that there's this idea that in reading literature, but maybe especially in reading this more kind of mythic, I don't know, mythical genre or 
entering into a different unfamiliar world with strange creatures and magical powers and something that again is unfamiliar do you think that it helps people see things that maybe they are otherwise blind to in the everyday yes ab- absolutely i know you're a fan of saint john henry newman i am so if you <laughs> if you uh put up with a short quote from from newman I've got one for you. The heart is commonly reached not through reason, but through the imagination, by means of direct impressions, by the testimony of facts and events, by history, by description. Persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. I think he's very close to what, what Tolkien and Lewis talk about in how literature works on us, imaginative literature but also how mythological works. And you think about work, work on us, and you think about it, the mythology is just using a common vocabulary, right? It's that all the great epics have the same characters or they come from, the, you know, from this Greco-Roman tradition, right? It's using a vocabulary that was a common vocabulary in the West. And one of the great sins of the 20th century around the 1920s was to cut ourselves off from that vocabulary. Right, we we're all Freudian now, right? But the difference is Freud knew his Freud knew his his classics. <laughs> Freud knew his mythology. But people, you know, after the twenties, I don't re- need to read this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Not the not the original stuff. And so we've cut ourselves off from that language. Right, right. Well, now you're now you're really singing my tune. But yes, and some of us are not Freudian. <laughs> by, <laughs> by the way, but but yeah, I mean, I sort of. I'm incredibly invested in this idea that, you know, what what literature does, I mean, one of the impacts that it has upon us that is, or at least potentially salutary, is that it, it does help us to see. It's a kind of training of, you know, perception in the, um, in the sense that Aristotle talks about in book six of the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, the wise, the practically wise person, the person with phrenesis, uh, is able to see. He has a certain kind of intellectual perception and, and can literally see things that other people can't. And that's why he knows what to do in the constantly changing circumstances of life. Right. And yeah, so I, so I loved this, I loved this opening quote because I think that it also gets to what I take actually to be a, I mean, didactic is the wrong word, but there is a kind of, there is a kind of habituation or training Mm -hmm. that takes place when you approach great literature and you're reading it well, right? I mean, you can, you can obviously read great literature in a way that's shallow and, and sort of come away empty. But, but I think that it just kind of naturally lends itself to this. But look, I, I mean, is Tolkien an, an Aristotelian? <laughs> he is. I, I, I would argue he is in large part. He's really frustrating because he never talks directly about Plato and Aristotle. So this is all kind of in his psyche and in his youth. He has, of course, gone through the catechism at the Birmingham Oratory that 
St. John Henry Newman founded. Oh, wow. Oh, awesome. He, he is a, a very devout Catholic who is uh, um, a Thomist, you know, because he is he's, he's regularly going to Mass and he is orthodox in, in his belief. But how does that come out? And he, he describes, again, to, letter to a priest, he describes Lord of the Rings as a very Catholic novel. And people question, well, what does that mean? You know, does, does that mean that Galadriel is the Virgin Mary, uh, right? <laughs> do, do we look for these exact, you know, parallels? Or does he mean that he's talking about theological concepts like forgiveness and grace and humility, right, in his works? And I tend to think there's more of the latter going on. So he can explore things that are important to him, important to Newman. He can explore them best without directly competing with the theologians and the Bible by using this genre that we call fantasy, that he would call the fairy story. Right. Well, I love that. I mean, so maybe he's more of a scholastic Aristotelian, which I think is the best kind. But <laughs> maybe let's just dive into, I mean, we, you know, don't, don't have too much time left, but maybe we'll just dive into the first two chapters of the book. Okay. So there's sort of like the framing chapter and then, you know, we can just like pick a virtue. So, so the frame uh, kind of that I give is the, the garden. I, for some reason, went to Voltaire and the end of Candide and just tend your garden, right? Look at this work about like pick, picking a philosophy and it all comes down to, well, just tend your garden. And I, it got me thinking about The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's like, what, it's about, what is it about? It's about gardeners, basically. P people who plant gardens and take care of their gardens and those who chop down trees are the opposite. So it, it's as simple as that. It's about gardening. Um, and what, you know, what are people who are, who are gardeners? Gardeners are people who are close to the earth, to the humus, right? They are down to earth. They have humility. Humility, the virtue of humility comes from being down to earth. And Tolkien just loved the kind of puns that he could play with the hobbits, the hobbits as rabbits, as, as little creatures, as people who burrowed, people who ha had small homes under the earth. And so uh, I begin in, 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 in the book with humility as kind of a foundational virtue. I think that Augustine and, and Aquinas would, would agree with me on that. And one that is not a classical virtue. And, right. and that's the thing. This is not a book that says Aristotle is right. I mean, this is not, you know, my version of Aristotelian virtue ethics. It, Aristotle's virtues and especially Homer, Homer's virtues are often in not consistent with Christian virtues. So humility is not what you get when you read the Iliad, right? It is right. not no. yeah. a heroic world virtue. It's the opposite, as I show in the, in the scene in the book where, from the Iliad, when Odysseus is literally taking the rod of power and beating a commoner over the back with it, just tell him to shut up. It, and, and this is the way we can think about Christianity as a radical fronting of the secular virtues of the Roman world, right? In the, in the Sermon on the Mount especially, Jesus is talking about humble people in the Roman world, the humiliores. Who were the humiliores? They were people who were subject to the worst crime and punishment, uh, punishments for their crimes, right? Like crucifixion. So mm -hmm. it is a radical thing. You've got to look for little heroes, right? In Christianity, you've got to look at the little heroes. 
And Tolkien is fascinated with the ennoblement of the small, taking small creatures and showing how they can be noble. And The Hobbit, the novel, is about that for Bilbo, taking a, a little creature who is also just a homebody who cares more about his possessions, his pipe, and sitting at home at the, around a comfortable fire, taking him into this fairy realm, into this world of adventure, so that he can learn more about himself and be challenged until virtues like courage and friendship and fellowship come out of him at the end of the novel. Well, and he ends up being called to kind of heroic virtue, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, Aristotle talks about a little bit, but I think really gets going once we add the life of grace to to the account of how you how you acquire the virtues. <laughs> I mean, is that something that Tolkien is thinking about? Um, the extent to which, you know, what what this humble hobbit is capable of depends on sort of outside help of some kind or yeah i mean you know yes yes in in the lord of the rings you know he's he's setting up things in the hobbit that he doesn't have answers for like the ring what is the ring other mm -hmm. than it turns you invisible what mm -hmm. is it you know this great scene with gollum is just his chance to play around with a cr great creature that he created and have a riddle game in which he literally taught Anglo-Saxon and Icelandic riddles as part of his job. So he was getting to make up riddles. It was all just kind of fun. And then he eventually started thinking more about the ring and about a symbol of evil or a symbol of, mm. of power and how it could corrupt the wearer. Mm. And so he changes later editions of The Hobbit to reflect that. And in The Lord of the Rings, he explains it that Bilbo... What did not was not truthful about how he obtained the ring. He didn't tell Gandalf the real story, and the reason is that the ring is corrupting. Mm -hmm. Right, that even though he's a good person, he he's possessed it for a long time, and it and it is corrupting him. So that's a very serious and some would argue very Catholic theme about about original sin and power. Mm -hmm. and something he explores definitely in The Lord of the Rings. When he's writing The Hobbit, he, he doesn't really know he's going to go there yet. Mm -hmm. You know, but it also kind of reminds me of The Ring of Gyges, right? Yes. Which is kind of like it's a fairy tale, myth. right, in the pagan world? It's, it's Plato using myth, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. This is why Aristotle may be right a lot, but he's not as interesting a writer as Plato. No, <laughs> Plato no, not at all. I mean... Style. Aristotle could just get boring. Plato well, uses myth and dialogue to, to, to keep the reader engaged. And, and the mm -hmm. Ring of Gyges in The Republic is one of these examples of how he can use myth to do what the power of the poets, right? He wants to banish the poets, but he's essentially doing what the poets do, using that power of enchantment to uh -huh. teach philosophy. Yeah, well, just so people who are unfamiliar, in book two of The Republic, so, you know, The Republic is about, like, what is justice and... In particular, whether like, what are the reasons that you have to be just? Right. And you have these kind of nihilistic interlocutors who are basically pressing Socrates and saying, well, look, the only reason that people are just is because they fear 
punishment. They feel they fear some external consequence, like they fear punishment or they fear like a bad reputation. And if you but if you could just make it the case that you could be wicked and be inoculated from those external consequences, like nobody would have any reason right. to be just. And that's when the ring of Gyges comes in because Gyges is like the shepherd and he's doing the shepherd thing. And then all of a sudden, like the earth opens up and there's some ring uh, and he puts it on and it makes him invisible. Right. So right. he's like free to do whatever he wants so long as he's wearing the ring. And, you know, he does he does some bad stuff. I think he. So he like murders the king and takes his wife. Yeah, he does murder <laughs> as, as Gollum. So, so there's there's definitely an influence of the Ring of Gyges in 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 the the Ring as it emerges. But even Gollum is not an entirely wicked creature when we you know first meet him. He he's just this kind of slimy you know pathetic creature living underground. So Tolkien kind of comes back to that story and is more interested about what happens when you're around raw power for a long period of time what can it do f to you what can it do to even the good people mm -hmm. like like galadriel and 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 gandalf and frodo how it can still corrupt you and that's just this very adult powerful theme in the lord of the rings mm -hmm. i think that you know would would you know that's not children's stuff but but when he we first find the ring in, in the lord of the rings it's an object Right. It just gets Bilbo out of of this trap. Um, mm -hmm. But it gives him that first moment of displaying courage. Right. And it's mixed with uh, mercy and pity because he can kill Gollum when he's invisible. Right? But he doesn't. He thinks about what Gollum's life must be like living underground without seeing the sun, without feeling the air. And he takes pity on Gollum and jumps over him in the dark instead of stabbing him with the sword. And that act of pity of saving Gollum's life ends up in the great saga of the Lord of the Rings being what it's all about. The story mm -hmm. is over if he kills Gollum and possesses the ring through an act of murder. He does it. He possesses it through an act of pity. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm looking at the time and I'm realizing that we kind of need to try to close this out. So I just want to say, like, this is a great book. It's really rich. Like, you have this whole bit about Tom Bambadil as the Megalosuchos. <laughs> like, that blew yeah. my mind. <laughs> because honestly, I've never, like, that whole thing with Tom Bambadil, I'm just like, okay, well, that was just like a weird thing that happened and I have no yeah. idea. Not in like, the movies. They didn't even put it in the movie. What? Well, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not surprised it got cut actually because it is a little weird. But I just, I was so, I don't know, I was so struck by your line on that. Anyway, I, I got a lot out of your book, and I, and I really <laughs> recommend it to, to my listeners. But just, just to kind of close things out, just because we have to, sadly. And maybe we can have you back on to do a deeper dive in the Lord of the Rings or actually to talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald, because I had no idea that he was into medieval stuff and that's blowing yeah. my mind. And now I realize I'm gonna have to read your other book. But just to close out this conversation, you know, we were kind of talking about how 
like the critical reception of Tolkien has has had this lasting influence and people yeah. sort of like thinking it's unserious or it's only for children or it's primarily right. for children. I mean, I just, I just wonder if we could have some final thoughts about how grownups can, can sort of take myth seriously again. Right. And whether or not it's at all connected, like our inability to take myth seriously, is it all connected to kind of our loss medieval literature? Yeah, the, the, the receding of the Ancien Regime, it's really the entire old order, the old way of doing things. And, and that, I'm working on a, on a scholarly book project to, that addresses this very question, and I'm not sure I have a, a great answer yet. But it, it has something to do with the rise of realism as a, as a genre, of, of especially in the novel, and people fascinated with, with journalistic writing almost, the detail realistic detail in novels, that was a turn that was taken in the late 19th century that's still dominant. Um, so apart from magical realists, some postmodern authors, right, there are not a lot of authors who work outside of that, the, that form who are considered great authors. So if you do work outside of the form that developed in modernism, um, then you're, you're considered not to be serious. And, you know, fantasy, children's literature, but not serious literature. And uh, I think that does a huge disservice to, to Tolkien and Lewis. I mean, Tolkien held three endowed chairs, two of them at Oxford. The, the man spoke and read 25 languages easily. He, he was a smart guy who knew what he was doing. You're just not reading the book closely, is what I would argue about The Lord of the Rings. It's a very complex work. And I was the same way. My first readings of it, I didn't see all that was going on. But in terms of The Hobbit, I think it's an easy read. You can read it with your children, and you can come back to it, as Lewis says about good uh, children's books, are, are books that adults read and that come back to again and again. Um, but at the end, uh, I, I want to close with this Hobbit philosophy. Where do we see a philosophy in The Hobbit? And it's just this simple statement that a dying king makes to Bilbo at the end of the book when he says, there is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom blended in good measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. To me, that is beautiful writing. It's simple, but at the same time, it conveys Aristotle's notions of the golden mean, of blending, finding the, where exactly the virtue lies in the, among the extremes of vice. And it addresses the vices that have ensnared us, power and gold and worldly things. It addresses those and says, well, actually, the worldly things that you need are really just friends, good food, songs, sitting around a fire telling stories. Um, that makes for a merrier world. I want to live in a merrier world. I want to respect this Hobbit philosophy and live like a Hobbit, as mm -hmm. Tolkien did. Mm -hmm. What more do you need than this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have so many... <laughs> Sorry, my mind is racing. Uh, in part because, you know, I, I, I'm very much a fan of modernism and realism, 
But of course, I agree with the Hobbit philosophy as well. But I, but I do think, yeah, I mean, this has been really helpful for me. I'll just, I'll leave it at that because I kind of have to. And we and talk I, sometime about how Fitzgerald is able to kind of do both. Yeah. Right? Well, you're a, obviously going to have to come back. I would love to. I'm inviting slash demanding that you come <laughs> back on the podcast. And in the meantime, I haven't read The Hobbit with my kids. So I'm, I'm now, except for some, we just went straight to The Lord of the Rings. I don't know why. That might have been my son's choice. I can't remember. But, but I'm you excited. To watch the movie. Yeah, prob- probably. Yeah. I'm excited, though, now to go back and, yeah, to read it with, with your framework in mind which obviously I'm so deeply sympathetic with. But yeah, for now, I just want to say thanks for coming on and thanks for your book. I really enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Jennifer. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks, as always, goes to Will Dethridge, Bea Cause, and Joe Coleman for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to us, and also by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. Patrons enjoy many benefits, like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive artwork and free digital subscriptions to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. So I hope you'll check out that page. And for our next episode, I will be joined by the poet Dana Joya to discuss Baudelaire's famous work of poetry, The Flowers of Evil. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. <laughs>